We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And we are joined today by a very special guest, a dear friend and colleague, the Deputy Director of Trua, a rabbinic call for human rights, Rabbi Rachel Khan Troster. Hello, Rachel. Hi, it's great to be here. It's so great to have you with us. Um, and uh, in particular, it's great to have you with us as we talk about uh, two really important uh, pieces of pop culture that we've uh, all had the uh, pleasure of enjoying over the past couple of weeks. Um, the first is the West Wing reunion special uh, that aired on HBO Max uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and the trial of the Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin's new film that premiered on Netflix just a couple of weeks ago. And we're talking about all of that uh, in the context of the upcoming presidential election. Uh, this is being recorded one week to the day from the presidential election. You'll hear it just a couple of days before the election. But before we get into all that, uh, Jesse, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the West Wing special and the trial of the Chicago 7. I guess we are having a very Aaron Sorkin day here. The Torah of Aaron Sorkin, if you will. Um, the West Wing special, I have to say, um, was fine. Wasn't anything special. Uh, you know, I, I did appreciate- the special was not special. It was not special. I do appreciate that Sterling K. Brown was brought on. Um, I, I was a huge West Wing fan. I still, for the past four years, when I have had sleepless nights, which is almost every night of this uh, administration, I'll turn on West Wing and it will help call me the rapid walk and talk pacing of Aaron Sorkin's Torah helps me go to sleep at night. Uh, the West Wing special was uh, a theatrical retelling of one of the most well-known episodes, Hartsfield's Landing. Uh, Hartsfield's Landing is a... Otherwise known as the one where Bartlett plays a heck of a lot of chess. Yes, a lot of chess. It's actually based on Hart's location in New Hampshire. In uh, the show, they call it Hartsfield's Landing, but it is one of the first places to declare its results in a presidential primary, a small town. Uh, it focuses on how the first, uh, one of the first voters in that town turned 18 and was casting her first vote. They cast their votes at 12 o'clock midnight, count them at 12.02. And that's the only news to talk about until polls close the next day. And so, well, the votes don't matter. It's all about the messaging. Um, it was a fine episode. It was nice to see uh, all of those well-known faces. It uh, reminded me of a couple things. One, uh, they all look pretty old um, compared to when, when, when the show went off the air about 15 years ago. Uh, and two, 
Bradley that Linford. To me, that to me was, I love Sterling K. Brown uh, and he was great in, in the episode, but his youth and his handsomeness uh, were very distracting for me uh, in comparison to the rest of the cast who has, you know, grown old. Well, did you also notice Bradley Woodford looks way, like he aged way more than any other cast member. Um, they all looked, you know, older than their 15 years ago versions of themselves, uh, but he looks way older. Uh, I wonder if it was just the beard. I wonder if the Bradley, beard. I wonder if he had shaved off the beard if he would have looked yeah. closer to his uh, West Wing days. Um, but the the episode in general uh, featured Michelle Obama. It featured Lin Manuel Miranda, um, among other people. Uh, the idea being that it was also uh, co-sponsored by the organization When We All Vote, which was an organization that the Obamas started. Um, to combat voter suppression and voter disenfranchisement, uh, which is really a big part of this election that we don't talk about enough. Uh, this election is not just about people voting. It's about uh, preventing those who try to take away people's votes from doing so. And I think that's really what that episode focused on a lot. The second thing that we're going to talk about, Mike, as you mentioned, is The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is an Aaron Sorkin written and directed film. It's actually only the second film that he has directed following Molly's Game, which is very underrated. And there's, The Trial of the Chicago 7 focuses on the trial that took place following the protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention uh, by... Um, a number of organizations, a number of protesters coming together, uh, really all coming together for an anti-Vietnam War protest. And these different organizers, part of the Yippies, part of the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, part of uh, the MOB, the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam. Uh, it was clear, uh, based on the Justice Department, that these protests were not premeditated, they were not plans. And then a year later when Nixon was well-established- The, the office, riots weren't premeditated. Correct, yeah. correct. Um, but when Nixon was in office, uh, their, his Justice Department decided to uh, make an example out of them and have them stand trial. Um, there are parts of it that are, are fictionalized to um, try to make a point in the way that only Aaron Sorkin can, but it really was a powerful storytelling uh, in a number of ways. It talked about the racism of the Justice Department in, in doing so, right, when they brought in and threw in Bobby Seale, played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen uh, II, um, the head of the Black Panther Party, who was in Chicago for all of four hours, but they wanted a person of color on trial to scare the jury. Um, they really brought together these different organizations that some of those people never even met before. They threw in Lee Weiner and John Freund's so that they could let some people off and find them innocent so that it would look like they weren't as bad as they actually were. Um, and it was really troubling a reminder that the Justice Department, especially because it gets all of its authority from the executive branch, is really dependent on who the president is. Uh, we're recording this the morning after Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed as the newest associate justice of the Supreme Court. And 
it's a reminder of how much justice in this country is determined by whomever is sitting in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk. And um, that was especially true in this case. Nixon wanted to take advantage of these protesters, of these riots, and had a very skewed, malicious idea of what justice was. I want to open up to talk more about the movie in a second, but I just have to give a shout out. I thought everybody in, in the movie was really stupendous. Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Abby Hoffman, I think deserves an Oscar for his portrayal. Uh, Jeremy Strong, um, who played Jerry Rubin, threw me off at first. I couldn't figure out who it was. And then I was like, oh my God, that's the guy from Succession. who was incredible. Um, Eddie Redmayne, who was Tom Hayden, was, was good. Everybody, I, I think, really was great. Rachel, what did you think about the show and the film? You know, it's interesting. I enjoyed the show a lot more than I expected to possibly for reasons that had nothing to do with the episode. I, first of all, I just loved the way it worked as film theater. And I just actually thought to myself, I would watch an entire, them doing all of West Wing over again as theater. Um, because I, I just loved the way it was stylized. And I also thought, given what we know about the cast that they've maintained, this sort of closeness and that they tease each other online, that like there was an opportunity to see that warmth of them as human beings through showing it as a play. Um, you know, it's, I, I think it's been interesting for me as certain people who I idolized um, and writers have been proven recently to be maybe not the best people, um, watching uh, some you know, people who I actually cared about in shows that were meaningful for me, watching the cast really come through for justice. I, I thank God every day that the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation have turned out to be tremendous liberals. We can do another show on Trek the Vote. Um, but it was really great to see them together. And so that warmth was actually inspiring to me, especially as someone who's really like committed to the work of justice in groups that you need good friends to do this work. And so that I found really powerful as well, just seeing their interactions. The movie was interesting for me. Um, you know, I've come to understand that, you know, I'm a Canadian, I grew up in Toronto, and that there's a way in which I'm still learning about the 60s because it was already one step removed from my experience. So I didn't, I had to go back and look up a little bit more about the trial of the Chicago 7. Um, it's not something I think about a great deal. and I, I wanted to learn more, but I think that also meant that while I was watching the film, I couldn't disconnect the way I wanted to. I feel this way when I watch The Crown too. Like, you know, I'm constantly Googling, you know, is this episode of The Crown, how accurate is it? And I felt that a little bit way about the movie, um, especially since I, I'd seen a few friends pick it apart online before I saw it. And so I kind of had their critique in mind which isn't to say that I thought I mean I thought the actors were great I also had that moment of disconnection where I was like who is this person playing Jerry Rubin and realizing that it was Jeremy Strong uh really took me aback because I love Succession and didn't the fact I found him somewhat unrecognizable until I until I googled it um was a bit shocking for me so I enjoyed it as a film I I wish it had been more true to the history I think especially when you're in a moment where you could interview the existing you know, the, the people, the survivors. Um, so my feelings about it were mixed, even though like if it had just been fiction, I think I would have um, maybe been able to take a step back. I, I, and that's kind of also the, how I approach it. I, I, I said to my husband who watched it with, with me, I was like, view this as kind of like fan fiction of the Chicago 7 trial. And then maybe we won't be as you know, nitpicky about whether it's historically accurate and we can just enjoy the moment. And that's how I would recommend looking at it. It's, it's political history fan fiction. Kind of like, actually, I would say that, you know, Hamilton is the same way. It's fan fiction. Uh, absolutely. And, and there's, uh, right, there's that great scene in the reunion special 
where the actress who plays Donatella Moss, Janelle Maloney, is talking to Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it's like, it's not a competition about which one of us does more for civics and right. for learning about civil rights, uh, Hamilton or the West Wing. Uh, but I think you're right. It's, it's historical fiction with a specific purpose, right? The ending of the trial of the Chicago 7 never took place. But Aaron Sorkin wanted to make a point that they were ending by this reading of the names of all those yeah. who were casualties of this senseless war. And it was really a powerful statement. Um, Mike, I remember when, when both of us led USY and Wheels buses as group leaders. And it was really based on your inspiration that I took my bus, as you did, to Kent State. Uh, and and um, we toured the campus with one of the survivors of the police brutality that took place there. Uh, he showed us where he was shot in the hand by, by police uh, following Vietnam War protests. And I agree with you, because of my youth, uh, that age was somewhat so foreign to me. After I, I watched the film, I spoke for a while to my father about um, what it must have been like, the fear of your, having your number called in the draft and that sort of thing, something that seems so foreign to me today and likely will never return again based on what modern warfare looks like, good, bad, or otherwise. It's a whole nother tangential conversation. Well, you know, I, I grew up also, you know, with a, I grew up in, in the States, uh, uh, in Georgia, but, you know, I grew up with, with a very sanitized and idealized um, version depiction of the 60s, you know, so you know, we saw protests related to Vietnam, you know, in, in um, documentaries and in history class, or we watched, you know, the, the 1963 March on Washington, right? But I, I don't really remember, until I was in high school, you know, really encountering uh, the, uh, the, 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 the violence at the heart of, um, of, of many of the movements for social change that are, that emerged in the sixties and not violence. You know, I think the trial of Chicago seven does a, you know, does a really good job of portraying this, right. Of, of saying, you know, the, the violence um, was the, was, was state violence that was already present in that moment that was then, you know, outed and directed at, at protesters. It wasn't violence that was stemming from protesters, although you know, cynical politicians like Richard Nixon would then use the violence um, as an argument for why we should, you know, squash the protesters and characterize the protesters as radical and anti-American. I mean, some of them were radical and some of them were anti-American, but not necessarily, you know, uh, unleashing the violence in the streets. And the trial of Chicago 7, you know, says repeatedly, you know, we didn't riot and we certainly didn't planned to start a riot in in chicago at the convention the police rioted uh in uh in in chicago in 1968 and you know and, and i can say that from my vantage point you know seeing this in, in richmond virginia during the course of the summer during the black lives matter protests um the same thing happened right there there, there certainly were instances of, of protester um generated violence uh and you know and especially destruction of property uh uh, in you know during the summer, uh, in particular during the Black Lives Matter protests, but but more often than not, what I saw was uh, you know police um, acting as the aggressors toward those protesters. And what was you know really startling to me, and you know something that I really never saw, was you know juxtaposing that with in back in January on Martin Luther King weekend, that, you know which seems like I don't know 
a century ago now. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, uh, thousands of armed militia people and, and other protesters brandishing weapons essentially occupied my city, occupied the city of Richmond um, to protest uh, uh, gun legislation um, that was uh, moving through the Virginia state legislature um, in a new democratic-led uh, legislature uh, this during this past legislative session. Um, and the police there were, you know, essentially like kind of rolled out the, the welcome mats for these folks and said, you know, it said, you know, as long as you don't fire your weapons, right, we're, you know, we're, we're going to welcome you here. So like the, and most of those protesters, those Second Amendment protesters were, of course, white. So seeing the distinction between the sort of multiracial, multi-ethnic um, uh, protests that Black Lives Matter protests that took place this summer and how police met those protests versus how police met the mostly white Second Amendment protests that were taking place earlier uh, in the year was was incredibly stark to me. And I'm glad that uh, the trial of the Chicago 7, you know, highlighted that reality, um, uh, that, that it was in particular the progressiveness and the multicultural uh, dimension of these uh, protests at the 68 convention um, that, uh, that, that made them a target of police violence um, and, uh, and um, made them, uh, made it possible for cynical politicians to exploit them in the way they did. Uh, what's your take on it, Rachel? Yeah, I actually found some of the, the scenes of the protest itself and the police brutality, some of the best scenes in the film. Um, and they resonated with Mike's original. They showed, in some ways, as someone who is both a protester and is a student of protest, like the ways that people, like, sort of like the geeky elements about where are the marshals and making sure that the protest was going well. You know, the understanding that protests can't be, like, that you can't hit, like, like um, block them in and that they're they're full of energy that needs to go somewhere and that also you know that one person can spark off something that that's unanticipated even when you're trying to de-escalate and the role of the de-escalation tactics in these protests and then also like watching it's the fact is that we have a police force who in the face of protester violence you know a, a protester charging right are going to respond with violence and that's their their inclination um and we've obviously been talking a lot you know, at my house about what it means to be, you know, to, to sort of, that nonviolence means countering violent protest with like a, 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 a commitment to nonviolence. And, um, but that has to be understood by everyone at a protest. And, and you know, at one point when the, pro, the scene of the protest got violent, I turned to my husband and I said, you can never let that happen at a protest, right? You have to all be on the same page. You have to have a shared understanding of what it means to be at this protest. So someone can't yell, like, charge the hill, and that's what you do. Um, because when that, and, and that, that and because you can see how quickly things get out of hand. Um, and that when people are upset, when you, when, the presence of the police itself is so is so provocative and confrontational, you know, and is really scary. Um, that to actually have the fortitude to be to be like we are going to meet this with nonviolence is really hard. And I appreciate the ways that they showed what that looks like, and then what a like what an overreaction on behalf of the police looks like. You know, that the excuse that like once the, once someone has provoked the police that they can do anything in the name of safety that was that really resonated with my own experience um, and what I've seen at protests. Um, and I, I, I like it could have been an instruction manual for people on how on what can happen at protests. Rachel, I wanted to ask you further. Um, you actually, right? You said as a student of protests, right? You helped uh, introduce me to the power of protest and civil disobedience from uh, protesting in front of Wendy's and, and Publix 
when I lived in, in Florida and got deeply involved with the tomato rabbis movements and with the coalition of Immokalee workers uh, to um, protesting for immigrant rights to at a TRUA event, uh, participating in an act of civil disobedience with uh, 18 other rabbis uh, protesting Trump's Muslim ban and spending the, the evening um, in a holding cell. And I'm wondering if we can ask you a bit further because sometimes like Tom Hayden, yes, he, he deflated the, the wheels, uh, the tires of a police car, uh, ended up in prison. Jerry Rubin was arrested. Um, part of protest, especially when this protest uh, wasn't given um, the okay from the mayor's office to take place. Uh, part of protest may lead to arrests. Part of civil, civil disobedience is using one's privilege to make a point. Um, what role does civil disobedience play, you think, in the Jewish ritual act of protest? That's a really great, great question. Um, I mean, I think that this is the moment where we're most prophetic, where we're speaking again. You know, we're, 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 if protest itself is in part about changing the narrative, I mean, it also is about, for me, protest is less about the one person who gets arrested and more about the community of people who are out in the streets. Um, you know, my favorite Jewish text continues, as a justice rabbi, continues to be the Haggadah because it's the story of all of us. Like, it's just the story of all of us making change. And it's not the story of one person or one leader. Um, but within that, one leader does make a difference and their prophetic voice speaks out and they can say things that people don't want to hear and by saying them over and over, it changes the conversation, but you have to draw attention to that voice. So um, sometimes that means using your privilege to get, you know, to, to, to amplify the voice and make it louder. Um, I think one of the things I've learned over the years is that the role, especially for those of us who are allies, like the role of civil disobedience can look different. You know, um, different movements want allies doing different civil disobedience on their behalf, and it can change. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement at a certain point asked white clergy to stop getting arrested on their behalf and to stop symbolic, like, like knowing that we would have different experiences with the police, um, like that our arrests were only highlighting that. Um, whereas certainly the immigrant rights movement at the beginning of the Trump administration, I don't know the way it is now, we're asking people who were citizens to use that privilege to draw attention to the issue. Um, so we can, and as clergy, we like that ability to draw attention to the issue is even more so. Um, so like we can be a voice, but we have to understand that we're in the voice of service of something. Um, that once it becomes about us, then we've lost the thread of the narrative. I think that's what's, that can be harder about civil disobedience, that it can become about the act and not about the story and the change. Um, I also have reminded that like um, Jean Sharp, who wrote sort of the Bible on civil disobedience has a hundred ways, has a hundred forms of, of nonviolent protest of which civil disobedience is one of them. So I also like, like to think that we can deal you know, that our role is, as, as, as Jews is to come up with different tactics to say this is not okay, right? Shifra and Pua, the midwives, they are civil disobedience because they're, they're gumming up the works of power and they're using it to draw attention to the issue. So that that, that is the goal of this work is to say, is to, is to draw attention and change the conversation. You know, um, until the Israelites were, were willing to own their freedom, they couldn't be free, right? And I've thought about ways in which protests and civil disobedience have changed the narrative. I mean, abolish ICE is not as controversial on the left as it was um, in the summer of 2018 when we started saying it. Uh, defund police, even though it, I'm not saying it's not a controversial thing to say, because it still is, and it, we're, it means unpacking and it means different things to different people, but 
we're talking about in all kinds of, of quarters in ways that we weren't before. So I think civil, you know, that's also important too, is to introduce radical ideas, right? If prophets introduce radical ideas and insist they, that the world that we live in is not the world that we should live in, um, that, that civil disobedience can be part of amplifying that narrative too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I like Jesse. I'm, I'm so grateful for your leadership and for your teaching and for uh, Trua's work. And you've really uh, taught me and, and, and inspired me along with so many others uh, about that. And, but what I want to ask you is the child of Chicago seven in particular, but, you know, holding both of these pieces of art together uh, brings up, I think, meaningful and important questions re related to what you're talking about. So um, there's this powerful scene, pivotal scene in the trial of Chicago seven, where Eddie Redmayne's uh, Tom Hayden and Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, Abby Hoffman are, you know, having a debate about, you know, what's the goal of their uh, anti-Vietnam protests. And, um, and Tom Hayden says, you know, the goal is winning elections because we can't get anything done. We can't, you know, accomplish, uh, you know, anything related to, you know, racial justice, you know, uh, changes in education, ending the war in Vietnam, whatever it is, we can't do anything unless we win elections. And Abby Hoffman says, no, the ultimate goal is, is justice, right? Is a democratic society, um, is, uh, is, is ending the war. Uh, and, and everything, whether it's elections or it's protests, is, is a means to that end. Um, you know, it, it was not the episode of West Wing that we saw, but it's one that sticks out in my mind. There's, a, there's an episode of West Wing that centers on the, uh, the, the anti-globalization protests that were, um, that were very live in, in the you know, late 90s, mid to late 90s. Uh, and Toby Ziegler, uh, played by Richard Schiff, uh, is uh, dispatched to go and talk to these protesters and like hear what they want um, and to try to, you know, work with them, negotiate with them or, or you know, claim to them that the Bartlett administration um, is at least you know, sympathetic to some of their views, if not on their side. But he ends up getting incredibly frustrated because they're just shouting at him and at each other uh, and not able to um, actually articulate what it is that they want. He ends up kind of blowing up at them. And you see in this, I mean, like, you know, very often, you know, because every character uh, is either Aaron Sorkin or who Aaron Sorkin is talking to in, in an Aaron Sorkin uh, film. This, you know, The Trial of Chicago 7, I think, you know, represents... Um, you know, the, the kind of conflicted attitude that people, especially in progressive circles, have about, you know, um, what are we actually doing, right? Are we, you know, are, are you know, and, and you bring it up in, in the language of prophecy and prophets, right? The, you know, the prophets, you know, are sort of notorious um, for, you know, speaking truth to power and, uh, and, and making, you know, uh, profound and definitive moral arguments, but being routinely ignored. Right, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel says about prophets that they spoke an octave too high, uh, and so people couldn't actually hear them. So to me, you know, like the the, the language of prophecy is very much in the language of like Abby Hoffman and uh, you know the uh, the 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 uh, anti-globalization protesters in that episode of The West Wing, and um, and there's a different language, a language you know of you know more moderate incrementalist approaches, a language of you know winning elections and holding power and making change through the machinery of government, the language of Hartsfield's Landing, of you know of of politics as a chess game, and uh, and and every vote matters, even if it will only move the needle forward a little bit. Um, 
what's your what's your Jewish take on that question? Do you know is it is it is the answer somewhere in the middle? Is the answer all in one column or the other? What what's the right way of of affecting change? So I get to quote my favorite Jewish justice text, which is Parshat Re'eh in Deuteronomy, and the tension between you know that there shall be no needy and that there will always be needy, right? Um, I worry that if, if the goal is winning elections, first of all, that becomes the goal, but it also sets the term of the debate. You'll never be able to see beyond what is achievable right now. But actually, you have to um, imagine the world you want, and then elections become a means to get there. And they are a form of power. They're not the only form of power. And they also, like those broader movements create the container in which elections happen. You know, and I think that's um, some of the politicians I like like some, you know, on the left, people like uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think are very good at holding that tension between like the real work of governing and the coalitions you need to be part of to make the change that is possible now possible while still understanding where we're going. And I think as Jews, we are we, we are grounded in the here and now, right? So much, that's one of the things we say about opposed to Christianity, we're grounded in this world but we still have to have an eye on what is possible. What is the world we want to see um, rather than what is possible now? Because I think if you only are focused on this is what we can win, then one, the change will be too small. It won't, and it won't be inspiring, right? Because, you know, if the ask is end poverty, then the election becomes about the means to do so. But if the, you know, if it's just, well, let's pass this bill, that's not gonna move people. Um, I think the Green New Deal is particularly good at this. Um, because they're saying like, these are the things that we want. We want a world in which, you know, climate change ends and then we'll have policies that flow from it. And so I worry also then, I worry also that the approach of like being behold, that, that the only means is elections um, and those like that kind of change, uh, I think can, can lead one to forget the bigger movements because you become focused on winning the next election, right? And you can't take bold stands and prophets tell us that we must take bold stands sometimes. Um, I would also say that I worry that the focus on elections ignores voter suppression, right? If you believe that, that what really matters is winning elections, rather than that winning elections is, poor, is important as part of a bigger strategy towards change, um, you ignore the fact that there are many people who don't have, um, who don't have the same kind of access, right, uh, to voting. And, and that also that some of us, especially those of us who are, who are white or, or functionally white, like when we do get the ability to vote, we know that our politicians will listen to us. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's something we can't always take for granted that, you know, not everyone is equal in the people. Um, I think it's funny, I sometimes track issues, you know, I, one of the, the, the wonderful things about having been in this work for like more than a decade is I can see change happen. So that sounds hard, especially because we feel like we're at a dark moment, but I can see places where the Jewish community is doing a lot better on things than we were when I started. I would say working on ending mass incarceration is one of them. Um, I got told probably 2012 that that was an issue the Jewish community would not work on. And I never quote the rabbi who told me that because he'd be embarrassed now, um, but it was very telling at the time. And then within two years, um, largely in the aftermath of the death of Michael Brown and the opening up of the conversation around race in the Jewish community in a real way, that, 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 that not only were we beginning to grapple with issues of race, um, but that also then we were also dealing with some other issues that we've been told weren't Jewish issues like ending mass incarceration. And, and, I, and you could see that very strongly during the, the protests after the death of George Floyd that because progressive Jewish communities had grappled with it 
since 2014, 2015, then it was more possible for more centrist Jewish communities to begin to talk about race. Jewish communities that, ha that wouldn't have been able to say Black Lives Matter back in 2014, 2015. So another issue um, on which I've seen that sort of well-meaning white liberal shift has been on access to voting. Um, you know, that I think for many of them, their mo moment of, of truth was actually the 2018 elections in Georgia, when they saw the way in which Brian Kemp shut things down for Stacey Abrams and the numbers of people who couldn't vote. And I think that awareness that voting and then the access that comes with voting is not something everyone can take for granted um, has changed the way that we, we talk about voting. And there's really more people talking about expanding access to voting, especially in the Jewish community. Because it's very important, you know, I, I thought, I, I argued with people a lot after, after the unfortunate acts of Parkland when I would see people drive by these the teenagers and high school students who are protesting and saying, and of course you guys need to go out and get and, and register to vote. I was like, that's going to be important, but it's not the only way that these, that these inspiring young leaders are going to make change. Um, it's really, yeah, it's important to, to just remember that not everyone is equal and that we can't treat everyone as equal. That voting too is one of those issues in which we have the world that we want and the world that we live in. Well, a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, Mike, the episode you're referring to is somebody's going to emergency, somebody's going to jail uh, from season two of The West Wing, which uh, I believe is the best season of The West Wing, but that is another conversation for another time. Uh, Rachel, I appreciate what you're saying about um, voting and elections are not always the answer. You know, what I take for granted is the fact that this was a bunch of progressive young adults who were protesting outside of the DNC, right? In some ways, it reminded me, uh, not the same, but it reminded me of some of the protests of Bernie supporters that were taking place outside the DNC in Philadelphia in 2016 uh, for very different reasons, because they thought that the whole process was, was uh, planned out ahead of time and was not fair. Uh, but uh, in Sorkin's words, Tom Hayden is saying, we're going to protest at the DNC because the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, that there's not enough daylight between him and Richard Nixon. Uh, so for them, it's not about party because party is not enough. Party is a starting point. I do think that elections matter in, in the point, to the point where um, AOC said, you know, it would be a privilege to negotiate and advocate for why the Green New Deal is the legislation that we should take up with a President Biden, because elections do allow for certain conversations to take place that otherwise uh, wouldn't take place. It used to be about bipartisanship. It used to be about checks and balances. Uh, none of that really ha is happening right now in the way our, our country uh, is functioning or... Um, not functioning. And so I, I think elections do allow us to get people into office that will listen when we protest, right? So uh, we need the right people to respond to our protests. And that's not necessarily saying people who agree with us. I know, right, following the protests when uh, family separation at the border came to light, uh, there was enough of a protest and enough of an uproar that elected officials we're willing to really fight for it. Uh, that's not to say that the problem is solved, right? Arguably what's going on on the border with MPP and all that is worse than it's ever been. And there's with COVID even less and fewer opportunities to fight for it. But um, we still need a protest. Elections are not the answer. Uh, elections are a part of the answer though, I, I truly believe. 
I, I appreciate also what you're saying about access to voting, because that is something that I certainly um, take for granted. It's not just access, it's not about voter suppression, but it's also a, an apathy that is developed over time when people feel like, uh, especially communities of color, um, that elected officials don't really care about their needs, um, that, that they are only um, there for reasons of tokenism during the campaign. Can I just, can I just uh, piggyback on that for a second uh, to say that, you know, it, it, it strikes me in, in West Wing, you know, in, in Hartsfield's Landing and, in, in, you know, an episode that really focuses on the, on the power of the vote, right? Uh, C.J. Craig says, uh, you know, uh, something like freedom is God's gift and democracy is its birthright or something like that, right? As a way of explaining, you know, why she's so moved by the, the vote taking place in Hartsfield Landing. It's, it's, I think, easy to overlook the fact, I don't know the actual demographics of that, you know, small town in real life in New Hampshire, but my guess is it is very close to 100% white. Um, you know, the, the fact that uh, um, Iowa and New Hampshire have such disproportionate uh, influence in the primary system in, in our elections, um, you know, to the fact that, you know, uh, in it, season it, it, six of the West Wing, then candidate Matthew Santos on the campaign trail points that out in New Hampshire. Yes. Uh, and it does not go well for him when he does point it out. But uh, uh, but, you know, to the, the fact that um, that within the West Wing, you know, in, in the original uh, cast, you know, the only uh, recurring black cast member was uh, President Bartlett's body man. Uh, Dulé you know, Hill. Dulé Hill, um, uh, you know, Charlie. Uh, uh, you know, so it's great that they brought in Sterling K. Brown to, to play um, chief of staff. As far as I know, there has never been an African-American chief of staff in, in real American politics. So just, you know, something to note. Um, but, um, but anyway, all of this, I think, to me, points out exactly what you're saying, what Rachel is saying, that there, you know, that, that when we talk about democracy, when we talk about the power of the vote, um, there's, a, there's an element of privilege in, in talking about that. Um, and that, you know, still, you know, voting rights and access is under repeated and routine assault, um, including from the Supreme Court of the United States, maybe especially from the Supreme Court of the United States, who just yesterday uh, voted uh, against uh, a voting access um, uh, case uh, coming out of Wisconsin to uh, to enable votes to be counted uh, so long as they're postmarked by election day. Um, Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh um, uh, issued the, uh, the the concurring opinion in in that uh, in that case. Um, just really extraordinary to to point that out, and it's also something that's reflected more explicitly. I mean, this shows you know I, I think uh, in a way Aaron Sorkin's growth as an artist um, that he depicts, I think, very clearly within the trial of Chicago 7. Some of this is, you know, directly from the trial records and transcripts, um, how, um, uh, how the African-American member of the, um, of the defense um, is uh, treated so radically differently, I mean, so unjustly, violently, 
in, in the course of the trial, that, that justice is not administered equally, um, that the system is, uh, is not set up the same for uh, black people and for white people, that the system is not set up the same for uh, white people who look like Tom Hayden and for white people who look like Abby Hoffman. Um, and one other piece of this is, you know, this West Wing shows this, Trial of Chicago 7 shows this, and real life has shown this over and over again in the past, you know, four years, especially um, in, in ways that I never would have imagined um, uh, had, had, had we not had the, the last four years that we've had, um, that the, the, the just administration of our government is not necessarily or is not totally built into the systems of government that we have. It depends on the goodwill and, 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 and uh, honest intentions of the people who are occupying those roles. Abby Hoffman's, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman says this um, in Trial of Chicago 7. He says um, that I believe that our, the institutions of our government are an incredible thing. Um, and right now that they're um, uh, occupied by um, some really bad people. And it's, and it's extraordinary to me the ways in which the, um, the, the actual people who occupy those positions and those roles um, uh, can, can make such an extraordinary difference for good or for ill about how the um, uh, machinery of our democracy is actually utilized. That's true. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that like that when you look back on the past, whether it's films made during the past or films now about the past, that like the, we can begin to see the stories that we tell about how things have changed um, and how much it, who's in, who's in the seats of power matter. I mean, you know, the Trump administration has made me nostalgic for the second Bush administration. And I fought them on American use of torture in the war on terror. I mean, they were horrible, right? You know, like, I'm not saying that they, because I just simply wasn't worried that democracy was going to collapse. I remember another great political film, right, is uh, All the President's Men. And um, when I had just started at Toronto Fight Torture, um, we watched it. I had seen it when I was much younger, and, and my husband had not. And um, it seems so so sweet, right? Like in that, you know, okay, all they were doing was complaining about, you know, the Watergate break-in. And, and that seemed so small compared to the, like the scale of the human rights abuses that I was fighting against, which doesn't mean to say that Nixon wasn't implicated in, the, in those kinds of abuses too, but it just felt like that that was the scandal. And so then to like go back and like think now when everything that Trump has done is on the, is on the front pages and yet that still hasn't been enough to shift the needle makes me worry. Um, that, that we've lost our capacity to be shocked um, as well about, about what norms are. Um, it'll be interesting to think about what stories we tell about these years um, when we're past. It was interesting, um, I will say from a Jewish perspective, I'm sad that they didn't do the film version of the next episode of The West Wing that has the most Jewish moment ever, the night of the election, right? When he says, you know, go outside. And when he writes, the cons when, they ask, when they ask Rob Lowe's character to write um, whether he has written a concession speech, you know, and that, uh, and they, they, what he discovered, he had they, both the Jewish characters go like go outside and oh, throw, spit, throw salt over your shoulders, spit three times, against the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing. And I feel like, right, like this whole week, I am not tempting the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing about what's going to happen on election night because, you know, it's very hard to see past this election. Um, well, so much of, of uh, Joe Biden's candidacy, I, I think, has been you know an argument 
for a, um, a return, or maybe not an explicit argument, but the sort of the undercurrent, the undertone of it is, you know, a, a return to normalcy, right? Like going going back to the way politics normally worked um, before Trump came and wrecked it. Um, but I, I think that, you know, from my vantage point, you know, uh, Trump is, you know, um, both a cause and a symptom of something that was already present uh, within within our politics. And, and I just, I, I wonder, uh, Rachel, like, like even if, you know, poo, 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 salt over the shoulder, uh, Joe Biden uh, wins um, uh, in, in the upcoming election, like, is there going back? Um, or, or has, or, you know, has, has politics in America been fundamentally changed by the past four years? My inclination is to agree with you that Trump is a symptom. And so there isn't going to be a way to go back. I also think it would be, it would be a sign of privilege to go back to say, because if we were like, can we just go back to the way things were before Trump would be only true for people for whom life was good before Trump. And we, you know, this has ripped off the bandaid and COVID even more so of the deep inequalities in our country. And so this is really a moment, I hope, God willing, poo 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 next week, um, to be able to say to ourselves, what is the world we want, right? I think that is, you know, the the Biden uh, Sanders unity team that was a beginning of that, like to be really push the needle. And then those of us who are activists, God willing, will have the chance to, as you said, you know, push Biden towards the world that we want. Um, but it isn't to just recreate the world of 2016. I think that Unfortunately, the COVID pandemic has made more people realize that that's what we have to do, especially around healthcare. Um, I was really worried, you know, as a rabbi, I'm, I'm not just thinking about policy, but I'm also thinking about like pastoral care, right? And I became very clear to me that there were a lot of people, especially I would say well-meaning, liberal people who care, but for whom life was pretty good before 2016, um, who were holding themselves together emotionally hoping to get through the Trump administration. And I was really worried that if, if he was reelected, if he, and which he could be, I mean, we don't know right now, that they were just like, that, that it would be very hard for them to go forward, right? Because it, they would just crack. And I think COVID actually was a precipitation for a lot of people to really have that like real sense of chaos and despair before the election, um, which is really unfortunate because it, the COVID-19 pandemic showed the ways in which we're not taking care of each other as a society, whether it's healthcare or childcare or the value of education. I mean, it still continues to, to, to blow my mind that we opened bars before there was a clear plan to reopen schools, right? That we, it showed what we value as a nation and it's not what we should value. Um, and so in this moment of crisis, that isn't gonna go away. I really actually had a moment a few weeks ago I thought to myself, Oh yeah, even if Biden wins, there will still be a pandemic. Now, which sounds silly, but when you're when you're holding out for hope, you hope hope covers everything, and then uh, now we're really still going to be here. Um, we have this opportunity to really value everyone and to and to make you know to, like to say healthcare is a human right, and so we can change the conversation and create the world that we want um, in this moment. Now that's what we have to do, um, and we can't go back, and we can't go back politically either. I, I think. I don't know that reaching across the aisle is possible, nor do I wonder if it's desirable. You know, I think there is a way in which we could normalize people who did horrible things, who stood up for horrible things. You know, you know, if you supported the separation of children, you should not get a job as a well-paid consultant to a TV network. That's just, just because we want to show bipartisanship or both this sort of problem with both side ism that is taking place. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, every time John Yu, who was one of the architects of the torture papers, shows up in an op-ed, I lose my mind. You know, if the Jewish definition of chutzpah is someone who kills their parents and throws themselves on the mercy of the court as an orphan, I've long said that John Yu will replace that as the definition. But I worry that, like, if we give Stephen Miller those, like, high-paid op-eds, God forbid, right, like, he will be the definition of chutzpah when he's, like, telling the Biden administration what they're doing wrong yeah. because because the Wall Street Journal is giving him a, or someone, I don't mean the journal, is giving him a speaking post. Um, it'll be really bad. I appreciate what you said that, you know, we can't go back to how things were because things weren't great for most people. I think a lot of, about what Midrash Tanhuma says about the beginning of Parshat Noach, where it says, you know, why is Noach's name mentioned three times? And Midrash concludes that there were actually three Noahs. Right? There was the Noah before the flood, the Noah during the flood, and the Noah after the flood, because Noah realized the world after the flood was forever changed and different, that he couldn't be the Noah before the flood. And if anything, we hope that we understand that this world is forever changed. And for the better, we cannot be complacent. I think for many in the Jewish community, uh, we sort of focus on this sort of hashtag activism. We kept in our bubbles. We all agreed in theory with certain principles and certain ethics and values, but we were never willing to fight for them, to march for them, to make sure that everybody was protected. And these past four years, we see this with protests, we see this with marches, we've seen this with the Black Lives Matter movement, we've seen this with um, this current pandemic we're living in, that those with privilege have come to realize more so than ever before, what does privilege mean? What is our responsibility? We, we don't deny the privilege, but what is our responsibility to help those who are more vulnerable? You know, you talked about civil disobedience before. And I was asked when I participated, when I got arrested with a number of our colleagues a number of years ago, um, I was asked, you know, why I did this. And I said, right, I, that I recognize that I have privilege as a cisgender, straight, white male, as upper middle class rabbi. But the question is, what do we do with that privilege? To me, it's a responsibility to not just acknowledge it, but also to use it to speak for those who are fearfully si silent because of race or ethnicity or skin color or faith or country of origin or uncertain immigration status. It's what do we do? It's not enough to post a Facebook article uh, that doesn't do anything except amplify our own voices and our own echo chambers. Right. And, you know, and I think also social media, it creates a false sense of relationship, right? That on the one hand, I think there are ways in which it builds tremendous community, but on the other hand, like we we argue in in an echo chamber, um, and I, I mean that's what's so sad about this particular moment is that we can't like the physical community, the ability to build conversations is also different, and and people are not you know like. And because of fears of COVID, not everyone can sort of get out and be like on the streets and protesting the way that they would um, and trying to value that right, you know I, I remember um during the Black, the, the Black Lives Matter protest this spring, seeing rabbis I know who are in their 70s feel like they couldn't go and protest because they didn't want to, they were afraid of getting sick. And um, so how can we get beyond our bubbles and then, and really also then build the relation, like when these moments of crisis pass, how do we build the relationships and do the hard work necessary so that we can be 
in conversation with people who are deeply affected when the next, not if, but when the next crisis hits. I think that's really important too. One thing that I've been very heartened by, and I think this is the lesson I would give to everyone, no matter who wins this election, is just how much getting involved locally is important. Um, when I've been speaking to Jewish communities um, following the death of George Floyd, like a lot of them have said, like, what do we do in our town? And you know, especially sometimes towns that have large Jewish populations, and I don't mean Orthodox Jewish populations, but large Jewish populations can have, like they can be involved, like the racial histories of those towns are different. There might be, you know, they might have very segregated schools. They might be largely white towns. And so for the, for the Jews who identify as white, um, you know, so to actually say like, what can we do locally? And then that's a conversation we're gonna have to have about change no matter who wins. Um, and it does feel possible too, because it means you can grasp onto something. You can't solve everything going on in the world, but you might be able to make what's going on in your town a bit different because also those are the relationships you can build. And it's both, in some ways it's like, it feels a little bit more dangerous because those are the people you have to see when you go grocery shopping. But on the other hand, that's good because you're not an accountable in relationship with the members of your own community. I also think because it's very important for, for Jewish communities in particular, to feel rooted in place, right? Synagogues aren't just where they are because we built a building there, but because we're part of a bigger community. And how do we make sure that the members of a synagogue or another type of Jewish community are part of the broader community of the town that we're part of? As, as we wrap up here and as people listen to this, you know, in, in, in the couple of days before the election, um, what's, what's a message that you wanna leave people with, Rachel? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I would tell people that the, that the message I would, um, I would want is to, is to continue to pursue justice. Um, because I think that's really what God wants for us in the world is to, is to I mean, as much as I can say that is, is to say that like we are, that that is part of our role as human beings to create a world in which being created in the image of God is it's everybody's basic right and not something that is true for some people and not for others. And that that can be a guiding star no matter who wins. And to also uh, to not be afraid. Um, you know, when, when my kids were little, the, the pasuk that I found really meaningful was like, like that the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. I thought that's great because I'm not sleeping either right now. Um, and now of course I'm not sleeping because of the political situation, neither is God too. So um, like to know that God is with us in our struggles um, as well, um, that this is, that this is, both the blessing and the curse of humanity is that our job is to, is to repair the world um, and that there will always be things to repair. But if we can keep sight of what, of the world that we want to see, right? That world where there is no needy or whatever, you know, um, that will be, um, that that will guide us no matter what happens, even though it may be very difficult. Amen. And, and you know, and I'll, I'll just kind of add to that, you know, uh, the, uh, the the famous, maybe cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, uh, teaching of uh, Rabbi Tarfon in, in the Mishnah, right? It's not on you to finish the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. Well, we're, we're so grateful, Rabbi Rachel Kahn-Troster, that you've uh, joined us for this conversation uh, and, uh, and given so much of your wisdom and uh, inspiration for us to continue the work of justice uh, in our localities, in our country, and in our world. Um, that's it for us today for Pop Torah. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Do not forget to vote. You cannot complain. You cannot be part of this conversation if you are not going to do the work 
to participate in the process. We promise to do our part to make sure that voting access is available to as many people as possible, uh, but it is a sacred act, a holy act, and I hope you will participate in the process.